Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to our favorite night of the week, Saturday night, another halakha on Surah Al-Ma'idah, day five. Unbelievable. Um, and as always, I have to begin by calling attention to yesterday's out-of-this-world chutbah. Um, it is called Don't Believe the Losers, which um, that was sort of my initial title, um, is kind of my layman's response to this really incredible chutbah that I really encourage everyone to listen to. My second, um, after I thought, well, maybe that's a little too casual and maybe a little bit too blunt, so I changed it to Theater of Arrogance and the Sheikhs of Malesh, and then I thought, okay, no one's going to understand what that means unless they actually hear it. So then I changed it back to Don't Believe the Losers, because sometimes, you know, um, Sheikh is always encouraging me to like put titles that might be really interesting and that might catch your attention. So um, it really was incredible and it really started out with this really unbelievably um, offensive and um, shocking report. It's just a news article here from the Middle East Eye. It's called China Uyghurs Condemn Islamic Scholars Propaganda Trip to Xinjiang. So apparently there was a delegation of pro-government clerics from Bahrain, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, and the UAE, and they were praising China's efforts to combat terrorism despite the ongoing persecution of the Muslim minority. I, I don't honestly know what could be more egregious than, um, you know, having these sheikhs, like the, you can see the picture of people just walking in China, rubber stamping um, the genocide taking place in concentration camps. And these are supposedly our leaders. Um, and I don't know, There's it, it just blows my mind. Um, and there's so much to say about that. But it, it actually then, went, uh, Sheikh went from there to talk about the very last um, verse in Surah Al-Rum. Um, and it is basically the idea that there's, you know, God has given us the truth in our book. And yet there is so much confusion, like if you really believe that the Quran is the truth from God and you believe, um, then there should be no confusion because the Quran is very clear about what is justice and what is right and what is wrong. And yet people continue to get very confused and especially with when acts like this take place. And, you know, he describes how human rights organizations all around the world have documented, you know, incredible amounts of evidence of the concentration camps going on. And we know that this is a fact. And so how do you respond when you have these shuyukh um, show up in China to to give the, the China the thumbs up? Um, I don't know. It's just a really, really sad state of where we are. Um, but there's, the, you know, the idea of... Um, you know, the, the, these are the sheikhs of malesh, malesh meaning it's okay, you know, you should just focus on ritual and prayer and taking care of your family. Don't think about the injustices in the world. Don't think about anything that really calls, you know, for our attention and our effort. Um, and just how, you know, we, the Quran is very clear that we must be clear in our stand and we should not believe those who are there to fill our heads with something that we know is fundamentally uh, wrong. Um, there is so much in this beautiful, beautiful, rich khutbah. And um, I really, I mean, again, every single khutbah, every single week is out of this world. Um, but yesterday, just again, you think that you have heard the best khutbah you've ever heard, and then the next week, uh, Sheikh just comes and knocks it out of the park again. So that was very um, amazing. Then I just wanted to also call attention to um, something that I, if you don't get my weekly email, I actually shared really exciting news, which is that um, we just finished um, 
congratulations to Joe, especially, the text of Prophet's Pulpit, Volume 2 and we handed it over to the designers. So we are officially in production for volume two, which is so exciting. Um, if you think about this, you know, Usuli Press launched um, or came into existence with Prophet's Pulpit volume one, which came out in uh, April of 2022. So it hasn't even been a year, and now we are on our second book, and. Um, we are hoping, inshallah, that it will be finished and out and, you know, published and beautiful um, by Ramadan, um, which is a couple months away. It's pretty, you know, um, aggressive, but we're hopeful and, uh, you know, it, it'll be around Ramadan before, around, you know, or after. But it's an amazing um, volume and, you know, the first volume was about 70,000 words and this one is about 91,000 plus words and so it's um, 25 chapters as opposed to 22 chapters. And it is stunning. I mean, if you loved volume one, you will absolutely love volume two. And it was, um, you know, really designed to kind of be a progression deeper into this journey. I mean, volume one is kind of the, we refer to it as kind of the gateway um, into the series, but it, you know, gets all of us really on the same page because certainly what you hear at, this, at these khutbahs, at these halakas, this approach, this is really approach, is something very unique. and. This, you know, so the first volume is kind of like what what I always refer to as this tapsir kind of light, right? You um, learn about the the really beautiful essence of the Quran, and then you see how it's applied to what's actually happening in the world. Um, and it's so, you know, volume one was 22 chapters of this amazing journey. So when you get to volume two, it builds on the learning from volume one. It goes a little deeper in. It's, you know, assumes that you already, you know, know what this, this whole journey is about. And so um, we have some really, really powerful um, chapters. And in terms of the themes, again, you know, volume one had five themes um, and again, or five parts with, you know, different themes. And same for volume two, um, the themes that we have um, are raising Muslim youth, um, light, the light of the Quran, again, so building on this constant theme of bringing people from darkness to light, um, a section on reason, dignity, and justice, um, a section on lessons from history, and then a section on racism and Islamophobia. And these are just general terms, but when you actually dig in, you see what what is being said. You know, we talk about what you know racism in terms of the murder of george george floyd we talk about you know um the war in ukraine um we talk about all the issues that pertain to why um muslim youth are really having crises of faith and honestly it's not just the youth but it's everyone in this age of islamophobia um and some really powerful um essays that start out the book with even you know the purpose of the quran right or the message of the quran things that really ground you in this foundational message and things that you really um, haven't heard elsewhere. I think that one of the most powerful things is the way Sheikh puts out um, the message of, or, you know, the learning. It's so clear that when you hear it, it just cuts to your heart and your soul and you recognize it. Um, and what's really beautiful about both the Prophet Pulpit's books is that, you know, Sheikh gives this eloquent khutbah, which is powerful from a spoken word perspective. And then Joe, um, who you know is just like a maestro, takes that spoken word, turns it into, you know, a symphony on the written page, and what you end up getting is just profound. Um, and the the responses back that we get are are truly humbling and mind blowing. Um, and you know, there's there's it's hard to describe, but you just have to read it. It's something really substantive. It moves you. 
um, and it changes your relationship with this religion and, and with your God. And, and we've just heard that time and time again. Um, and thanks to, as I would say, you know, we have this incredible benefactor who allowed us to give gift copies of Prophets Pulpit One to anyone who wanted it. We continue to, to do that. So if, if you have not received your copy, you have a friend that you'd like to share it with, you know, email us. Um, Marwa is the one in charge and, you know, say a prayer for her because she's got like so many orders to fill. Um, Marwa at usuli.org. Um, give us the name of the person, the full address and email address, and then we would be happy to send it off. And it's, if it's an international location, we always offer to send two books so we can, you know, um, expand, you know, or drop the seeds of knowledge even further. Um, but you know, we that that effort, the prophet, the the um, share with a friend, uh, allowed the prophet's pulpit to reach 54 countries to date. And we, you know, with many more to be touched and countless places, you know, in, in the U.S. Um, so it's, it's been amazing. Um, and so please continue to, to support our work because we have like a huge inventory of, you know, more, um, we're repopulating volume three and we have several other volumes we could do. This is an ongoing effort. And I think it's a really important legacy that we leave behind aside from the tefsir as well. Um, Cause uh, you know, people, it's, it's, it, it touches you and it's easy to read um, and um, very meaningful. So then last thing is I just want to give an update on our adopt a Sura campaign. Um, we have five Surahs left that yet, have yet to be adopted. Um, Surah 34, Sabah. Um, Surah 52, Al-Tur. Surah 64, Al-Tagabun. Surah 65, Al-Talak. And Surah 66, Al-Tahrim. So if anyone would like to sponsor those and have their name uh, associated with that, um, when we publish the tefsir, inshallah, we would love to, you know, honor you or, you know, like, highlight that, or, or if you want to give anonymous, anonymously, that's fine. Um, but that's, um, thank you for everyone because, you know, we're, we're almost done with that campaign and then we'll come up with some other good ones too. So thank you everybody. It's been an amazing journey. I'm so excited. I'll give you more updates on uh, Prophet's Pulpit too as we go. But, um, you know, I'm just so proud because it's, it's a group effort, um, but kudos to Joe who, like, it, you know, it was an incredible um, it couldn't have happened without Joe's incredible work ethic, with his dedication, his commitment to all of that, and of course, without these powerful chutbahs to begin with. Um, and then the whole team of Asuli that, you know, is here in support doing research, editing, you know, whatever. I mean, there are just so many different things that need to happen for a book to come together. So the fact that we've done two books now, I'm so proud. And, um, you know, I hope that... Um, you know, people can see what we're actually producing, that we, we actually have something valuable to offer. And so thank you for being with us on this journey. And with that, I'm so excited to continue on Surah Al-Ma'idah, day five. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala al-Habib al-Mustafa Muhammad. Al-Nabi al-Ameen, Khatam al-Rusli wa al-Anbiya al-Ajma'in. Wa ala alihi الأظهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين ولا من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي So it's uh, apparently not clear where we, where we stopped but I got uh, but uh, if I yeah, it's around the early 50s, I guess. Um, uh, 
Alright, so as we we as we try to do we um sort of uh provide the reprise so that we we connect with our less halakha. Um Where we left off, I, I, we, we were emphasizing the we we were emphasizing the the critical concept that when Allah is telling Muslims about different people having different sharia but at the same time Allah's law is one and when we come to the concept of Allah's law is one the the entire tradition that surrounds the ayat uh, about al-hukm bima anzal Allah so 48 and 49 where Allah tells the Prophet when you rule rule by what God has decreed and do not follow whims that the entire trajectory of the tradition emphasizes the way justice has been corrupted in having different standards, as we said, for the powerful and the disempowered. And the, exa the, the specific examples that we have from the tradition, that, which was rather common, that powerful tribes would have a different standard of justice, uh, as opposed to less powerful tribes. I mean, subhanAllah, of course, our current, our modern world um, is very reminiscent of the situation. Um, you know, when you look at the, the, the structure of the present world order with permanent members of Security Council that have a veto power, um, that the Security Council cannot pair the UN uh, Charter, the the uh, a permanent member of the Security Council opposing a measure defeats the measure in the Security Council. So nothing can really be done pair the Security Council if a permanent member opposes uh, a particular measure which amounts to a veto power, and that's what we normally refer to as a veto power. It's not actually that you cast a veto. You just say, I oppose the measure, and that means it cannot survive in the Security Council. But, you know, if you look at uh, things like liability or responsibility for war crimes, responsibility for crimes of racism, um, it, 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 responsibility for environmental damage, irresponsible. 
the the way that international law or modern order works, it, most definitely it has variable standards. If uh, when the international criminal court tried to launch an investigation in the allegations of war crimes committed by the United States in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, the United States threatened, it even went as far, I mean, the Trump administration at the time even threatened to arrest and charge, um, I, I'm not sure on what basis, but anyway, threatened to arrest and charge uh, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court and various other personnel in the International Criminal Court and made it very clear that no investigation will take place about anything that the United States did in Iraq and Afghanistan and the International Criminal Court was forced to drop it. Uh, that's just, these are facts, They're, these are realities. I mean, whether the American media reports on them or not, but everyone that knows international law knows about these facts. Um, similarly, I mean, although a bit different, I mean, the, there are horrific reports of war crimes committed by Russia in Ukraine, including mass reports of rapes. Um, it will be extremely difficult to hold anyone in Russia responsible for the war crimes committed. Um, it will be extremely difficult to bring criminal prosecutions against any of the commanders that either ordered or allowed their soldiers to commit mass rapes. Uh, we know of wide-scale abductions. We know of trafficking in uh, people that are sold into in, in black markets. Um, but it, it, there are in the world we live in structurally the way things are 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 engineered in the world system that we exist in there are de facto different standards of accountability and liability that apply to world powers vis-a-vis -vis, um i mean look at uh, a country like china um, what they've been able to do in perpetuating the genocide that they've been perpetuating uh, has been um, atrocious. And yet, not a single Chinese official, despite the, the existence of cumulative testimonies, uh, I mean, we, I'm talking about volumes. I mean, if you fill, if you bring in the the testimony that the High Commissioner for Human Rights has about the genocide in China, um, they would fill, the boxes would fill an entire warehouse. You, you would have hundreds of boxes of testimonies from people who managed to escape, uh, relatives of people who perished, uh, some uh, Chinese officials who who uh, uh, sort of relented and, and, and left China and then sought shelter in some place and testified about what's going on, it would fill, the boxes would fill uh, an entire warehouse. But nevertheless, not a single Chinese official has been held 
accountable. And it's not likely that a single Chinese official will be held accountable. And that's because the, the way that the, the world system... So my point is that when the Quran underscores the problem of selective justice and how selective justice defeats the entire project of justice, the Quran is not talking about hypotheticals. The Quran is not talking about something that occurred in the past that no longer takes place. The Quran, because Muslims are the inheritors of the covenant, and because they are charged with the obligation of bearing witness, then the final revelation in the Quran has a very important message that these primordial laws of God, the laws that exist in the revelation that the Israelites received, the revelation that the followers of Jesus received, the revelation that it, 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 it's core to the entire Abrahamic tradition, these these basic laws that Allah tells the Prophet you must adhere to and you cannot deviate from. Do not vary from one face to the other. In fact, they, they ought not vary from one moral system to the other. These are universal, primordial, eternal, indestructible laws about what is right and wrong our rituals vary, but the core essence of what Muslims are charged with testifying about and the legacy that is handed over to the people of Muhammad والسلام, is essential and core. As we talked about in 48 and 49, and uh, in 50, this is contrasted to a state of jahiliyyah, which is always equated in Quranic discourse to a state of darkness. That when, when Allah poses the question, that do, do any of you, not just Muslims, but Jews, Christians, whoever wants to be, whoever wants to follow the law of God, that is to be contrasted with the law of ignorance. Where the law of ignorance, where things like different pe people have different worth, people have different values, uh, and an offense against a particular party is evaluated very differently depending on the worth that you place on the party. All of that is marked with hukm al-jahiliyyah, the, 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 the law of ignorance or the law of darkness. Okay. And we started talking, I think we, we've talked a bit about 51, and as I said in the past halakha, that there are reports that tell us that what 51 is talking about is the historical precedence of Abdullah ibn Salul and other 
people like Abdullah ibn Salud, who, because of having an alliance with Jewish tribes in particular, Christian tribes, it's less clear, but Jewish tribes in particular, um, their commitments about what's right and wrong remained elusive and confused. They understood that Muhammad was coming in with an entirely a reconstruction of the standards of justice and ethics, anchoring things in the truth, even the, the, for instance, the truth that, that, that we reveal to us from the time of Abel and Cain, that about how horrendous murder is, and how people can easily justify murder. And we, as we said, that these reports say that people like Abdullah ibn Salul, and we, we've talked about this in the past, that they would say, well, you know, we don't know what tomorrow will bring, and let's hedge our bets. Um, let's not alienate uh, our current allies, lest Muslims end up being the losers, and then it's not a total loss for us. And as I said in the last halakha, the, the issue, the problem with these set of reports is that Surat al-Ma'idah is revealed at the very end of the Hijri period, while the incidents, the stories about Abdullah ibn Salul and his refusal to uh, part with his pre-Islamic traditional allies um, was at the beginning of the Hijri period. And that, so the likelihood that what is being said in Surah Al-Ma'idah applies to the historical example, or is the occasion for revelation, is the historical example of Abdullah ibn Salul, is not very convincing. Now, of course, Quranic commentators, so notice here, When in 52, these people justify their lack of resolve, their wishy-washiness, their lack of resoluteness about what is right and wrong by saying, well, we don't know what tomorrow will bring and, you know, maybe we'll need the, the people of today that we're allied to. 
And then Allah says that Perhaps Allah will bring a fatah. Now, the Quranic commentators had a hard time with this because this is a ma'idah again revealed at the end of the Hijri period. Badr had already taken place, as we all know, right? Ghazwat Hunayn has already taken place. Ghazwat the victory in Khaybar has already taken place. Fath Mecca has already taken place. So many of them paused at the word Fath here, debating what does Fath mean. When Allah says, Asa Allah yati bi Fath, perhaps Allah will bring a Fath. A Fath means a victory. Uh, and because there is a tendency to associate the word of Fath with the particular historical event, and that is Fath Mecca. So some Quranic commentators said, well, you know, it must be that this is one of these ayat that were revealed 10 years earlier, or revealed pre-Fath Mecca, before Mecca was conquered. But then the Prophet instructed that it would be placed in Surah Al-Ma'idah. It's not convincing because there's no evidence for it. There's no evidence that the Prophet said, well, take this ayah that was revealed earlier and put it in Surah Al-Ma'idah. I think that the dilemma is uncalled for. It's an unnecessary dilemma. Because if you look at the text itself, it says, فَعَسَ اللَّهُ أَنْ يَأْتِي بِالْفَتْحِ أَوْ أَمْرٍ مِنْ عِنْدِهِ It is establishing a principle that projects into the future. In every situation, in which people who should know better, we're talking about Muslims, and these Muslims understand the type of morality that Islam came with, the affirmation of a moral order that doesn't play favorites with justice, that rejects suht, rejects you know, people selling their soul and selling their morals for money, that, as we said, that that's a soft is bribery, and uh, where where people like those shiuch that went to China in order for to, to have prestige and to have jobs and to have, you know they they take money and accept what is immoral. They understand that the way that Islam was a revolution against racism, against all types of uh, uh, the the wrongful moral order presented by the paradigm of Jahiliyyah. But for pragmatic, what is the, the very logic of that when you say, I fear that that era will, 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 will strike me? It's a, the logic of pragmatism and realism. Is that you're saying, let's hedge our bets 
because I don't know what tomorrow will bring. So yeah, you know, it's I know what morality requires, but that's too idealistic. Literally, it's talking about a mental set, and that is why it's it makes perfect sense that it's being revealed at the end of the Hijri period. That you are basically the attitude. Long uh, Abdullah ibn Salul, by the time that this ayah is revealed, is already dead. He's passed away. But it is talking about an attitude. The attitude of so many people that were confronted with the risk of, because Allah knows that the Byzantine Empire is not going to turn a blind eye towards Muslims and is going to become a sworn enemy. Well, confronted by that, there are going to be tons of people that will say, well, you know, let, let's make nice with them. Let, let's, let's compromise on whatever principles so that in case things realistically, pragmatically, don't turn out our way. Then we've hedged our bets, and then the loss is not going to be so stark. It is rare for people, it is truly rare for people to make a conscious commitment to be immoral. That is actually historically quite rare. It happens, but it's very rare. It is far, what happens far more common is uh, what are, um, what's your name called the banality of evil. Is that you simply say, I am, it's not that I'm being immoral, I'm just being pragmatic. And so I am surviving. Now, the logic of surviving is quite a dangerous logic because what's the definition of surviving? You're not, you're, we're not talking about the technical rules of Darura where someone has an imminent threat of someone has a sword over your head, which, you know, then we, we might talk about a personal exception in order to escape an imminent threat to your life. It, it, and it depends, because in Islamic law, you can't, for instance, kill someone in order to save your own life, which is a, 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 an exceptional moral stand in Islamic law. You, 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 you can't prefer your own well-being over an equal amount of harm that falls on other. So, and, and believe me, that in moral philosophy, that's saying a lot because it's a very unusual moral stand. Most moral philosophy says, well, if you need to save your life, even if you kill five people, 10 people, 20 people, it's okay. Uh, as long as you need to, as long as it's save your life, it, that would never fly in Islamic law. It would just never work. And of course, the irony in, 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 in moral philosophy is that there is a point where moral philosophy comes and says, well, now it's too much because all people that participate in genocides and war crimes, their excuse is, well, we did it to save our lives. And all war crime liability, it's, it's coming and saying, well, here it's too much. 
yeah, in principle, if you kill one person to save your life, would you forgive it? But at what point have we gone from a morally justifiable stance to a criminal stance? There is never a clear answer in a secular morality. In, 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 even in international law, when we talk about criminal liability for genocide, genocidal acts or you know, war crimes and so on, so you say, well, you know, for, to save my life because I didn't want to be a deserter and be put to death, I fired a missile. And I sort of reasonably knew that this missile will, prob will probably kill a lot of people because I fired it towards a civilian population. But I didn't have certitude. In secular philosophy, the fact that the missile landed on a busy market and killed 130 people, because this has happened with American pilots, right? And there was a debate in international law whether there should be investigations and whether the investigation should only touch the commanders of these American pilots or the people who actually carried out the orders where they flew a plane, fired a missile, it hit a busy market, it killed all these civilians and women and children. Of course, it ended up being all snuffed out by the U.S. I mean, after the initial discussions, the U.S. always comes in and says, okay, you've had your fun, no one is going to do anything about anything. But what is fascinating is the initial debates were struggling with... Well, you know, yeah, the pilots had reasonable belief that, you know, they could, it was reasonably foreseeable that they're killing civilians and that the missile falling and where it's going to fall is going to kill all these civilians. But, you know, do we really think that we... But the irony is that now when you come and talk about Iraqi pilots who did the same under Saddam Hussein with Shiite populations, here we didn't have any problem saying... They're absolutely accountable. No excuses. You know, yes, Lord Hussein was a criminal, and he would have tortured them and killed them, but international law comes and says, well, you know, they reasonably, it was reasonably foreseeable that they're going to kill all these civilians. Tough luck. They, they, and they were charged, and they were tried, and some of them were actually put to death. Some of them were executed. After, after uh, the jurisprudence of the Iraqi criminal courts after the American invasion... The U.S. set up these war crimes tribunals that tried tons of Iraqi officers and Iraqi military, convicted them, and many of them were executed. The law and the process was American. The personnel were Iraqis. But, and you know, in academia, we all know about this jurisprudence, but the irony is academia never comes to term with that the jurisprudence that the U.S. authorized, sponsored, uh, was keen to apply about war crimes committed and holding Iraqi military accountable for war crimes committed, the U.S. at the same time 
absolutely refused that any of these standards would be applied to American, British, or Canadian, or French personnel. It reminds you of who? Of exactly these people who come and say, yeah, but we have a vision of justice. And Allah comes and says, no visions. These are ahwa. These are just, these are whims. You know what justice is. You know what's right and wrong. Apply that because that is the law of God. The fact that you have different sha'air is no excuse for you to deviate. That is, that is why Surat al-Ma'idah is revolutionary. It, 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 it blows your mind. It's no... You mean Muslims have for centuries turned Surat al-Ma'idah into... Uh, you know, it, it, these, these micro-debates about disassociated parts of this verse, that verse, this verse on, you know, what you do about punishing a thief, this verse about what you do in the case of Hiraba, this verse about what you do in, in, in allying yourself to Jews and Christians. But the, the moral message, the cohesive moral message, was completely ignored and neglected in centuries of, of, because I'm, as, a, as I'll talk about later, I'm convinced that the early Muslims understood exactly what Surat al-Ma'idah was about, as, we, as we'll see. Okay, so what Allah says, you know, if it has al-Yahud wa nasara as awliya, it is not a matter of whether you befriend a Jew or a Christian. A Jew or a Christian could follow the same law you follow, committed to the same moral law that you are committed to, and then that wala doesn't present any problem. And, or, if being allied or wala, or, or an alliance is a poor word for wala, but I mean, we have to use it because there, there's no other English equivalent. But if your relationship with Jews and Christians um, dilutes your moral commitments, and if you, in fact, are using the logic of realism and the excuse of, well, you know, we can't be idealistic because ideal, idealists are losers, then that is a problem. Then that type of alliance, that type of wala is precisely what Allah is talking about. And when Allah comes and says, here it's a principle. The whole logic about, oh, what type of fatah, the whole debate about what type of fatah is Allah talking about. Allah is saying, if you have a relationship and faith in Allah, then you also must accept that the possibility of Allah completely turning things over in Allah in an instant, changing everything. So, 
your reliance on your own analysis of realism must always must always um, what's the word sublimate itself, make itself inferior to your belief in Allah's the possibility of Allah's victory. And then why either bilfat meaning an absolute change where the, the so-called idealists become the ones who are uh, uh, empowered and liberated and in control or amrin min indih or some other solution where idealism is not costing you as much as you think it, it's, it, it's going to cost you. But at the same time, even if Allah doesn't present that victory, that fath or amrin min indih, in other words, even if the idealist ends up paying a very heavy cost, that doesn't change the moral, the normative moral obligation. So it, it, you're, it's like saying, you come to me and you say, you know, um, we, we have to play, you know, there's no, let's take a real life example. Um, well, you know, in today's world, Israel is so powerful. Um, there's nothing, you know, it, we, it, we, we would gain much more if we make friends with Israel and look the other way as Israel is killing all these Palestinians, violating the sanctity of the, of the, of the Aqsa Mosque. Uh, inshallah, one of the khutbahs I was planning on talking on about an incident where no one knows about it, but in the UN, um, the United Nations discussed in the, in the UN High uh, Council for Human Rights, uh, the High Commissioner's Office for Human Rights noted this was very recent, an incident where Israelis went to the Aqsa Mosque, desecrated hundreds of copies of the Quran, did all types of horrible things to them at, in the vicinity of the Aqsa Mosque, urinated on them, defecated on them, tore them apart, then burned them uh, under the protection of the Israeli army. And it was raised in the UN, discussed in the UN, and the UN, the High Commissioner, the, the UN High Commissioner's uh, office condemned the incident. But not a single Muslim world country said a single word about it. No, no media coverage. I mean, it's amazing. Do you know what it means for something to happen in the Human Rights Council, and there's no media coverage at any time in the Human Rights Council? There is an army of journalists. Well, I was planning to talk about it, but I, I ran out of time on the khutbah. Maybe I'll talk about it some other khutbah. But when it came to this, there were no journalists around. It's like everyone had the, got the point. Oh, you know, this is a hot potato. We're not going to touch it. Now, I am sure that if I, I sit with Egyptian diplomats or with Saudi diplomats or with diplomats of whoever you can imagine, they will say things like, well, you know, 
there's really nothing we can do, you know, pragmatism and... But then if I tell you, what am I going to say? Where is your iman in Allah? Where's your faith that you have to, to, to stand by what is right and leave the consequences to Allah? That's precisely what this ayah is saying. When Allah says, maybe Allah will bring you fatah or some other resolution. Allah is saying, this is not your problem. Thinking of the consequences is not your problem. Your charge is the ethical, moral obligation of what is right and what is wrong. But if you play the game of realism and, well, we've got to do this because, you know, the circumstances, it, it, morality will be lost. It's precisely the banality of evil. The response to what happened to these mosques at the vicinity, right next to the Aqsa Mosque, what is the response to that other than Bino? I mean, absolute banality. I mean, you're just, oh, okay, well, let's, let's look the other way. And anyway, it's, it's just mind-blowing. Okay. Now, it is clear that when Surah Al-Ma'idah is revealed, even that late, in fact, I think that more than any other time, as Islam expanded and all types of people were, were, were declaring themselves Muslim, the writing on the wall was clear. I mean, if you, if you take the Sunni version of things, that you had four caliphs, who stood by principle, the Khulafa al-Rashidun, you know, Abu Bakr, Omar, Osman, and Ali. But even the Sunni version of things, even the Sunni version of things, accepts that the age of compromise, I mean, that it was only some 30 years after the death of Prophet, and then the age of politics and dynasties and compromise set in when would you say that in mulk started with muawiyah what, what what are the what are the what does that consist of it's not some sunnis believe muawiyah was immoral other sunnis believe muawiyah was a sahabi and moral but what everyone agrees on is that it was no longer the rule of idealism that it was now a rule of pragmatic politics pragmatic politics took precedence and became the priority. So it was clear as many people rushed to embrace Islam that the, the, the quality of Muslims, that those who were not properly anchored in more Islamic morality will outnumber those who, in fact, had the type of anchoring that we are talking about. The instrument that will constantly draw back people to the moral core 
is the Quran. The nature of Allah's creation is that everything that has a choice has the option of rebelling against the primordial laws of God. Everything that has a choice can rebel against its own fitrah. You know, it, it, if it, it, a plant or an animal cannot. They are moral by pre performing the function to which Allah has coded them to perform. But if you have the power of choice, you can in fact rebel against your very nature and alter your very nature. So, when Allah says that, listen, this is 53. That those who were anchored in Islamic ethics were looking at various examples of people who had initially sworn a commitment to Islam, but it became, it, it wasn't too long before their behavior demonstrated that they are pragmatists. They, they, they might have entered Islam purely for pragmatic reasons. And they are very much worried about, you know, cost and benefit, what the, 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 the welfare of their tribe, the welfare of their city, the welfare of their family, far more than what is right and what is wrong. As so many of you in in the the tradition, um, they say that that the ap apostasy that took place, or the apostasies in plural, that took place after the death of the Prophet the signs for that were obvious at the end of the life of the Prophet. In other words, the, the, the sources often say that there were 11 major clans, Arab clans, that apostated. Um, three of them apostated at the time of the Prophet, when the Prophet was alive. Seven apostated at the time of Abu Bakr. And one apostated at the time of Omar. In the sources, I don't have have it memorized, but just to give you a, a, a flavor of what I'm talking about. Um, okay. 
sorry. I'm still very alienated by technology and uh, Rami is not here so we have to do it the medieval way. <laughs> you just don't have to lick your finger anymore. I have no idea how to look for things other than I know Sharif helped him. <laughs> uh, okay, so so for in, for instance, um, so for instance, you know the the three that apostated at the time of the Prophet Ali Sallallahu Banu Mudlish, Wa Banu Hanifa, Wa Banu Asad. Uh, uh, Assad, of course, the, the, who were led by Talha bin Khwailid. Uh, the seven that apostated at the time of Abu Bakr is Qawm uh, Fazara, Wa Ghatafan, Wa Banu Salim, who were led by Ibn Abdul Layl, Wa Banu Yarbu' bin Barida, who plays a very. Anyway, uh, and some of Tamim. Um, and some of Kinda, the followers of Ash'as bin Qais al-Kindi. Uh, and um, Qom Ghassan were the people who apostated at the time of Umar. So you're talking about 11 major clans and three of them come to Islam and apostate at the time of the Prophet wasalam, Seven at the time of Abuq, and then you one at the time of Omar. But the writing on the wall is memorialized in the text of the Quran. It's like, I mean, the one who've, who've researched this and written the most about it and did an amazing job, of course, of Hassan Farhan al Maliki, may Allah liberate him, who's, who's in a Saudi prison. Um, So, when Allah is is pointing to these to folks and saying, there are those amongst you that are shocking you by their lack of commitment. We're not even talking about those who remained Muslim, but were hypocrites. Even those, I mean. There, and we even haven't talked about this group. There's another group, the groups who will apostate, who will rebel against Islam altogether in short order. And this is the, the look at 54. Ya <laughs> أذلة على المؤمنين أعزة على الكافرين يجاهدون في سبيل الله. That's why fifty four. 
even in the blew the mind of the early Muslims because it is merely predicting the apostasy that will take place. And you have dozens of reports of Muslims at the time, uh, shortly after the death of the Prophet recognizing that Surah Al-Ma'idah in verse 54 predicted that there will be the apostasy movements. And what is truly even more remarkable is that it also predicted that Islam will survive the apostasy movements. A human author, I mean, the normal thing is that you would think well, there's a leader, the leader will die, there will be, if, if you're considering, if you are recognizing that there will be massive apostasy, you are not sure whether the legacy of that leader will survive. There are, throughout Islamic history, I mean, throughout history generally, there are many great leaders and warriors who, even someone like Napoleon, where are the, the 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 masses of people that followed Napoleon once Napoleon fell? Nowhere. They dissipated instantly. Alexander the Great. Nowhere. Dissipated instantly. I mean, history is full of leaders where the followers dissipate, disappear instantly. But here. The Quran, which again, you find many reports of early Muslims who recognized, realized that this became far more meaningful after the death of the Prophet than when the Prophet was alive, that not only will there be an apostasy movement, but the apostasy movement will not kill Islam. That in fact, the core Muslims will overcome the apostasy movement and will prevail beyond the apostasy movement. If you, um, yeah, I mean, there's many reports like Qatada, Qatada says uh, that when the Harub al-Ridda, when the wars of apostasy occurred, that we, we then recognize that this verse was predicting what's going to happen with Abu Bakr and the, the war against um, the apostates. Um, okay. The other thing, I, I, I sort of forgot to mention this. Um, on Hudayfa, Hudayfa reports that the Prophet ﷺ, in comment, commenting on 51-52, this portion of Surah Al-Ma'idah, says, Beware, lest one of you ends up a Christian or a Jew without realizing it. And as we've talked about, 
what a Christian or a Jew represented at the time was a certain approach to knowledge, especially knowledge of the divine and a relationship to the divine. In Judaism, it was the exclusive monopoly of the rabbinic class over the Torah, the law of the Torah, and the relationship. God sort of falls out of the picture because it all becomes about the rabbis and the Torah. I mean, and and with Christians, it was the monopoly of the Catholic Church over the Bible and the text of the Bible was even illegal to read the Bible directly, but what you read of the Bible was the portions that were given to you by the church in service. And the more you research this, it becomes clear that what the Prophet ﷺ was talking about was precisely that, is that it is not, you know, an, a, the mechanical issue of whether you have a friend who's Jewish or Christian. That, I mean, if, if that was the case, Muslims would not have used uh, Jews and Christians in building their civilization right away because they had no problem finding themselves able to work with Christians and Jews um, and in tolerating the, the, the survival of Christians and Jewish populations in their midst but it is ideologically becoming influenced by, and because particularly that age, the idea of exclusivity of knowledge, the idea of elitism in knowledge, the idea that only the elite are entitled to have a direct relationship with the deity, that the deity would not, that it is demeaning or uh, um, unbecoming of a deity to have a relationship with the common man, but only the, the deity would care about the, the, and deal directly with the elite, and only the elite. It, it was so common, that medieval mindset, that in the same way that people historians, you know, struggle with trying to understand how how Islam managed to truly limit alcohol consumption because only Islam succeeded in the entire world, in the entire globe. The only system of thought that actually managed to make a dent with alcohol consumption was Islam. Everywhere else it failed. It, similarly, with the whole concept of elitism and the equanimity and egalitarianism of Islam, which was very much against the grain of medieval thought and medieval normativities. And so it, it, these parts of the Islamic tradition where we are warned not to follow in the footsteps, it, this is a, a, a moral warning that has a great significance because it really does raise the question of to what extent have we actually did follow in their footsteps and reproduce the same institutions that we warned about we were warned about
Okay. So there is, before we move on, while so many companions and successors agreed that um, 54 applies to the wars of apostasy or is predicts that the apostasy movement and predicts that Islam will survive the apostasy movement and that in fact the the the, the, the does does 54 have does it connote a promise that transcends the that particular historical context so in other words is Allah saying as a general rule that as some people have taken it, that it is a sort of Allah's promise that Islam or that while it might be that a majority of people would go astray and as we will come to in Surah Al-Ma'idah that a majority of people would go astray but those who adhere to the original truthful message that ultimately Allah's ease or Allah's victory will come to aid them. That has been a debatable issue in, in among Islamic theological debates. Whether there is an implied promise of victory um, beyond the immediate historical context of the apostasy wars. And I'm personally, I, I don't think the issue is significant. I mean, I think the, the, those who try to find in Allah's text a promise of victory to the righteous, in my view, this is my, my um, miss the point that what matters is not victory on this earth, but in the hereafter. For me, what, what I understand from the Quran, as a student of the Quran, that it really doesn't matter whether we're victorious on this earth or not. I mean, it, it matters that we do what's right. It's matter that we, it matters that we take a righteous stand. The results and the consequences are belong to a realm it's like above my pay grade above all of our pay grades this is this is Allah's this is up to Allah the owner of this universe you know may Allah do whatever Allah sees fit this is not for me to speculate on what matters the part that does concern me is that I know that justice does prevail in the hereafter. 
and what is right does prevail in the hereafter. Um, and this is, I think, consistent with what we are taught about how to think about this world. This world is, is not the realm of results. It's the realm of processes. Here in this world is where process takes place, but not where results take place. Nothing in this world is permanent. Nothing in this world is lasting. Any victory is elusive because even if, you know, the right people win, for how long? For how, you know, how long do you think it will last? It, it, nations rise and fall, people rise and fall. It, it is in constant flux. Uh, although you live, you're born in a historical moment and it looks, it feels like things are going to be immovable and lasting. It, it, if you're a student of history, you very quickly realize that this is the biggest uh, delusion possible. Um, you know, um, you know, the, the Ottomans were in Greece for, what, 300, 400 years? Can you imagine if you're a, a, a Greek born in the first 10 years of Ottoman rule? And, you know, or you were born in year 302, and you say, oh, the Ottomans have been here 300 years. They're probably never going to leave. Now, look at Greece today. Look at Turkey today. Um, not, Muslims were what, in, in Andalus 600 years? I mean, it, the reason that there was so much in Muslim bickering, Muslims bickering with each other, is that they couldn't imagine. They've been there 600 years. I mean, they could, they, Europe was dependent on Andalusian technology and Andalusian economics and Andalusian knowledge. They, they couldn't imagine that one day there wouldn't be Muslims in Andalus. Uh, Muslims were in Crete how long? Muslims were in Sicily how long? I mean, uh, so what does a victory mean? I mean, what does a victory mean either whether it's for the right people or the wrong people? Um, everything is in flux. Nothing is permanent. Um, you just do your job. Just do what you will be accountable for. And that's it. What time is it? Okay. Uh, let's take a, a two minutes and a half break. Two minutes and a half, not a second more. Bismillah rahman rahim Yeah, I, I want to move on, but I, um, I also keep praying to Allah that, to help me remember everything and not forget anything. And I, and I did remember a couple of things that, um, about, again, 54. Um, okay, so note that this is something to, to consider, to, to, to reflect upon. The two clans that apostated at the time of the Prophet 
did in fact fully apostate, meaning that they, they left Islam altogether. Uh, the seven clans that apostated at the time of Abu Bakr, the, the picture is more complicated, and, and I write about this in, in, in my rebellion book. Um, some of them did apostate by leaving Islam, but some of them didn't apostate by leaving Islam. They remained Muslim, but they refused to pay the taxes to the central authority. And Abu Bakr was of the, the, the opinion that no, if you don't, if, if that, that is going to cause the crumbling of the Islamic State, um, you, the, if you pay, if you refuse to pay taxes to the central authority, then you are in a state of rebellion. And the clan that apostated at the time of Omar, they apostated altogether, meaning they left Islam altogether. What's rather very interesting is that with the clans that apostated at the time of the Prophet the Prophet didn't do anything about it. He didn't take military actions against them. This is why there was an intense debate when about Abu Bakr's decision to take military action against the apostates at his time. The reason for this debate, and this is again because we, we, we study a very cartoonish version of our history, the reason for this debate is that they said, well, these the clans that apostated at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't do anything about it. He didn't take military action. Interestingly, the clan that apostated at the time of Omar, he didn't take military action against them. What he did was that he boycotted, boycotted them economically. Um, he, he stopped trading with them and stopped, um, uh, basically said that their, their persona non grata in terms of traveling to Muslim territory um, or doing business with Muslim territory. And eventually they came back to Islam. It's something to consider, right? It's something, I mean, now, this invites us, when you look at the details of the clans, who were the clans, and, you know, we know that some of them, um, like Banu Asad, who, you know, uh, had a false prophet, etc., etc. Et but look at something that we, we often do not focus on. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَنْ يَرْتَدَّ مِنْكُمْ عَنْ دِينِهِ فَسَوْفَ يَأْتِ اللَّهُ بِقَوْمٍ يُحِبُّهُمْ وَيُحِبُّونَ أَذِلَّةٍ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ أَعِذَّةٍ عَلَى الْكَافِرِينَ يُجَاهِدُونَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَلَا يَخَافُونَ لَوْمَ تَلَائِمٍ ذَلِكَ فَضْلُ اللَّهِ يُؤْتِيهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ وَاسِعٌ عَلِيمٌ If we try, look at what Allah, the way Allah describes those who could become in, indeed, in, in, in a sense, God's soldiers in response to 
the a failed portion of the Muslim project. In this case, apostasy. So, look at their characteristics. Okay, so first that they these the those who contrast to the apostates are people who love God and in turn they're loved by God. Their attitude towards fellow believers, azilla means they're humble and merciful, compassionate. And their attitude towards God's law that when they commit themselves to jihad, they don't care about who likes them or who doesn't like them. What they care about is their, their relationship to Allah and their relationship to the truth. What I have understood from this is that it's literally as if a, a, a program of qualifications for those who might be worthy of God's victory in face of dire, a dire challenge like apostasy. When people are, are selling out, people are giving up, people are reneging, what is the quality of those who might reverse the tide? And it is very significant that Allah says, first they love God. Here it is, it, it, the, 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 when you think of the extent which Muslims do not emphasize loving God, well, Allah says, you love God. They, they actually in a relationship where they know God enough to love God and God loves them in, in back. Second, they're not high and mighty or presumptuous or brutal or towards other Muslims. They're in fact azillah. Sharp contrast, for instance, to what we saw with ISIS. A sharp contrast, by the way, to what you see with a lot of Islamic movements. The arrogance, the, 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 the sense of self-entitlement, the sense of, I'm superior to you. Azilla means that you actually think of yourself as in people's service. لا يخافون they are committed to the principles that who likes it, who doesn't like it, doesn't make a difference to them. So we are in an age of apostasies. I mean, we are in an age where Islamophobia has made it fashionable for so many Muslims in the Muslim world and outside the Muslim world to leave the faith whether to leave it explicitly or 
without so you know you you go to certain muslim countries and you're shocked at how many people are no longer believers you know they're no longer they, they they don't take islam seriously anymore or they don't take god seriously anymore or if you want to talk about those who can respond to islamophobia what i understand from surah al-maida you are not going to respond by, to Islam of, the, the, the quality of those that you need to, re, to, to stand up to the challenge of Islamophobia and to stand up to the challenge of the consequences of Islamophobia are people who, are in, who have a loving relationship with God, not people who are in a fearful relationship with God, we fear God, as Muslims always love to say. Nakshallah, we fear God. That they are truly, their attitude towards fellow Muslims is one of overwhelming compassion and service. And the, the, the third qualification, that they are anchored in certitude, that they are not swayed by this opinion or that opinion. I wish that whether the fatah comes from Allah or not, that's Allah's business. But when Allah tells us about who can rise to the challenge of dire circumstance like this, I think it's quite clear. I remember I once gave a khutbah where I was talking about loving God, and then I got all these messages saying, oh, you're, being, you're just being Christian. In Islam, there's no loving God. And I kept thinking of Surah Al-Ma'idah, when Allah tells us, that those who can rise to the challenge of what you are confronting are people who are in fact in love with God. Look at the, the, the huge gap between those who are telling you even talking about loving God is being a Christian, which is mind-blowing because then they don't understand anything about the history of Islamic theology and, and the, the, the roots of the concept of God and love and the, the whole the whole thing, um, which by the way I mean it was was not in the original versions of Christianity at all. But anyway, um, that's um, something I think it would be just a mistake to overlook. Okay. Okay, so then إِنَّمَا وَلِيُّكُمُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَالَّذِينَ يَقُومُونَ الصَّلَاةَ وَيَأْتُونَ الزَّكَاةَ وَهُمْ رَاكِعُونَ So 55, I think, is self-explanatory. We haven't read translations today for some reason. So this, behold, your your ally, Muhammad Asad says, behold your only helper, 
um, shall be God and God's apostle and those who have uh, who've attained to faith. Those who are in constant prayer and render the purifying um, and render the purifying dues. This is the zakah. He translates it as purifying dues because zakah is um, supposed to purify. And bow down before God, so in a state of rukuah, for all who ally themselves with God and God's apostle, and those who have attained to faith, behold, it is they, the partisans of God, who shall be victorious. So that underscoring that again you notice that when when the believers or those who understand what an alliance to Allah means, the constant emphasis on salah zakah that you you are the social service aspect and in in this example that they are in state of rukuah sometimes the quran will will emphasize sujood sometimes it emphasize rukuah i haven't discerned the difference in between when it emphasizes this or that but allah alam you know some other people might uh, the, the quran is a text that was endless layers so Allah alam other people might figure something out in terms of when the Quran uses Rukur, when it uses sujood. Um but anyway. Now I I don't think I need to to un, to emphasize this but I think it's an obvious point that when Allah says that Allah's party are the ones who are victorious as Generations of commentators have noted, victorious doesn't necessarily mean victorious in terms of material victory on this earth. That victorious in the ultimate result, whether on this earth or in the hereafter. And, but ghalibun, the ghalaba here, is far more concerned or is primarily <coughs> concerned about the results in the hereafter, not in this earth. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَتَّخِذُوا الَّذِينَ اتَّخَذُوا دِينَكُمْ هُزْوًا وَلَعِبًا مِنَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ وَالْكُفَّارِ أَوْلِيَاءِ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنُونَ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ Sorry. So, we can, with this we can use the translation again. Uh, people who attain faith do not take for your friends such as those who mock your faith and make just of it. Be they from among those who have been vouchsafed revelation before your time or from among those who deny the truth of revelation as such, but remain conscious if you are truly believers. For when you call to prayer, they mock at it and make a jest of it simply because they are people who do not use their reason. As scholars like Hassan Farhan and Manti have noted, these ayat, an ayah like this, point to an important historical reality that at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, this late in the process, when we are talking about the, towards the end of the Hijri 
period. The Quran itself documents that there were both Christians and Jews in the vicinity of Muslims, living alongside Muslims. And they were what the Quran describes as kuffar, and most commentators agree that the kuffar here are not just people who have not embraced Islam, but those that the Quran elsewhere describes as munafiqun, because the Quran often describes a munafiqun as kuffar. So you have people who are technically Muslim, and you have people who are Christian and Jew. And what is the, the, the dynamic that the Quran points out, points to, is that they are making fun of the message of the Prophet They're mocking it. Especially, they are, as the reports, we have a number of reports of individuals especially mocking the call for prayer. And even sort of... Um, uh, what is it, you know, parroting the call for prayer in a disrespectful way, like making fun of the call for prayer, but repeating it uh, to make fun of it, in other words. Um, oh, and, and of course, yeah. That when you call for prayer, they, they mock. They, they, they mock it. They make fun of it. Because they, they have no reason. For me, it is rather very significant that what the Quran tells Muslims at this point warns Muslims about you can't befriend people who are clearly not worthy of friendship because they mock your faith. You note that the Quran itself doesn't as illegal matter command any particular course of action against these people and in fact we don't have a record of the prophet والسلام, because you know islamophobes love to try to prove that the prophet ordered the assassination of X person or X or, or such and such person after the conquering of Mecca. This is a, a big story with, uh, that we, I don't want to get into. If we do the Sira project, we can talk about each individual uh, example and what the story was and what the evidence was and all of that. Islamophobes are, but of course, what Muslims who are alienated from their tradition do not realize, and because we, the way we teach the Sira, we do not expose Muslims to, to this, is the fact that a living reality of people who are known to be mocking the faith, and yet they were not killed, they were not jailed, they were not persecuted, they were not even exiled. 
which was the I mean the 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 sort of considered the most beneficent thing that you could do in the medieval age is to exile dissenters rather than um, even that type of precedent it's not just for the medieval mind that it's hard to process even for the modern mind it's hard to process I mean I often wonder if Allah would have cursed me with being the leader of a nation, a Muslim country, would I have tolerated people who mock the Adhan or I know mock prayer? I mean, that level of tolerance, would I have been capable of displaying that level of tolerance? Condemning them as immoral is part of a discourse and a counter discourse, but you have not used the instruments of the state against them, which for centuries Muslims have been discussing this issue of why not and whether this constitutes a normative precedent for the law of Hezbah. There's a whole field of the jurisprudence of Hezbah in Islamic discourses. And again, because, you know, the, the ones who've written the most about it and the ones who've impacted it the most are Orientalists. And Orientalists love to cherry-pick the law of Hezbah for the example uh, to underscore what they often describe as Oriental despotism. The truth of the matter is the, the law of Hezbah ha bears its medieval character. The part that is surprising is when the law of Hezbah struggles with precedents such as this, because they can't deny it. It's memorialized in the Quran. And then so the traditions that speak about such and such and such and such person being known mockers of the Adhan, known mockers of Salat al-Muslimin and yet they, they die their, in their home on their own beds in the midst of their family. So, and we have m many examples, even during the laws of apostasy, Abu Bakr did not take action against those who remained a part of the state in other words, they didn't stop paying taxes, they didn't rebel against the state, but continued to be foul-mouthed against Islam. We get, where we get conflicting reports about whether action was taken some, against some of them is during Omar's reign. But Omar the reason is, because is that reports about what Omar did or did not do are often widely contested. But that's a bigger topic. But it, it's something that you can't just uh, um, fail to notice. That the, the, what the Quran at this late at this stage is telling Muslims, 
you know, those of you who don't have the sense of staying away from horrible characters, like those who mock prayer and mock your prophet and mock the message of Islam, uh, you're clearly in the wrong. Okay. Then 15, 59. وإذا جاءوكم قالوا آمنا وقد دخلوا بالكف وهم قد خرجوا به والله أعلم بما كانوا يكتمون وترى كثيرا منهم يسارعون في الإثم والعدوان وأكليهم الصحت لبئس ما كانوا يعملون So I'm reading now from 58 to 62 because this is a unified theme and we can't really break it apart لولا ينهاهم الربانيون والأحبار عن قولهم الإثم وأكلهم السحت لبئس ما كانوا يصنعون This is 63 And Okay, so 64 is also thematically connected وقالت اليهود يد الله مغلولة غلت أيديهم ولعنوا بما قالوا بل يداه مبسوطتان ينفق كيف يشاء وَلَيَزِيدَنَّ كَثِيرًا مِنْهُمْ مَا أُنْزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ تُغْيَانًا وَكُفْرًا وَأَلْقَيْنَا بَيْنَهُمُ الْعَدَاوَةَ وَالْبَغْضَاءَ إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ كُلَّمَا أَوْقَدُوا نَارًا لِلْحَرْبِ أَطْفَأَهَا اللَّهِ وَيَسْعَوْنَ فِي الْأَرْضِ فَسَادًا وَاللَّهُ لَا يُحِبُّ الْمُفْسِدِينَ So this takes us to 64. Um, I'm just read the translation first, and then we will. Um, okay. Um, so say here again, the, it's addressing the believers. Say to to those who the 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 recipients of the book, Christians and Jews. Do you find fault with us for no other reason than we believe in God alone and in that which God has bestowed from on high upon us as well as that which God has bestowed aforetime? Or is it only because most of you are iniquitous? Say, shall I tell you who in the sight of God deserve a yet worse retribution than these? They whom God has rejected and whom God has condemned and whom God has turned into apes and swine because they worship the powers of evil. These are yet worse in station and further astray from the right paths than the mockers. For when they come unto you, they say, we do believe, whereas in fact they come with the resolve to deny the truth and depart in the same state. But God is fully aware of all that they would conceal. And though can't see many of them vie with one another in sinning and tyrannical conduct and in their swallowing of all that is evil, 
Why do not their men of God and their rabbis forbid them to make sinful assertions and to swallow all that is evil? Question mark. Vile indeed is what they contrive. And the Jews say God's hand is shackled. It is their own hands that are shackled and rejected by God. Are they because of this, their assertion, nay, but why are God's hands stretched out? God dispenses bounty as God wills. But all that has been bestowed from on high upon you, O prophet, by your sustainer, is bound to make many of them yet more stubborn in their overweening arrogance and in their denial of the truth. And so we cast enmity and hatred among the followers of the Bible to the last until the resurrection day. Every time they light the fires of war, God extinguishes them. And they labor hard to spread corruption on earth. And God does not love the spreaders of corruption. Okay. And then 65, it will then say what God does want from the people of the book. So let's go back and unpack this a bit. So there is a historical context and a reality. And let's go back and emphasize something I said about Surah Al-Ma'idah before. There is still in Arabia disbelief. There are still people who are not, who are still polytheists and still idol worshippers. There are still hypocrites. There those who nominally came to Islam, but not really. But what is truly remarkable about Surah Al-Ma'idah, because it is forward-looking, it emphasizes the dynamics with a group of people who anthropologically, sociologically, at the time Surah Al-Ma'idah is revealed, are not the most important faction but will become the most important faction a hundred years later, a couple of hundred years later, and that is the people of the book. As I said before, it sort of anticipates the fact that idol worshippers are actually not going to be the, the, the main problem in short order, in a few hundred years but actually people of the book. So one of the things that even commentators, early commentators had, is that, well, shouldn't Surat al-Ma'idah, if it's Surat al-Ma'idah is going to just emphasize on the sociological reality before it, wouldn't it, shouldn't it be more focused on the kuffar in, in policies, the mushrikeen, the, the idol worshippers? But no, it focuses on the, the rather often troublesome dynamics with people of the book. Now, as several historians noted, that Surat al-Ma'idah itself documents the continued existence of Christians, obviously, but Jews as well. So the idea that Jews were just cleansed out 
as Orientalists often tell us, is, is not, I mean, it, it, it's clearly belated and defied by the text of the Quran. So, okay. Now, with the Islamic victories, as will become even more so a hundred years after Surah Al-Ma'idah is revealed, in the very early Islamic dynasty, the most important Kalami debates, the most important theological debates were taking place between Muslims and Christians and Jews. And so if you are exposed to the Kalam literature of the first 300 years of Islam, going back and thinking of Surah Al-Ma'idah blows your mind because it what it describes as taking place at the time of the Prophet most definitely became the prevailing phenomena in the early Islamic period during the Amawid dynasty and the early Abbasid dynasty. And that is the constant theological critiques of Islamic beliefs, whatever versions of the Quran they had translated, a lot of them were corrupted, and even the life of the Prophet, written by not polytheists, but by Christians and Jews. And most of the Kalam literature develops responding to the theological challenges by Christians and Jews. But, again, if we controlled our history, if we were not dominated by Orientalists, the thing that is really striking about this Kalam literature in the first few hundred years, Muslims are providing logical, philosophical responses to and, and these philosophical critiques of the Trinity and philosophical critiques of the chosen people and Muslims are obviously influenced by reading I mean they're obviously influenced by reading Aristotelian logic in their responses to Jews and Christians but what strikes you about the critiques what Jews and Christians are saying is it's gross unfairness. It, they're not logical critiques. They're, they're, they're below-the-belt critiques. They, they criticize a straw man of the prophet. They attribute all types of, you know, for instance, the, the, the claim that the prophet was possessed by a demon. They, they are, and, and they have, I mean, in, if you look, there are actually some really good books about m medieval understandings of the, of the prophet, European medieval understandings of the prophet, and European medieval understandings of the Quran. And the thing that strikes you is that while Muslims have entered the, the process of civilization and 
civilization requires a certain reverence towards knowledge, a certain ethic towards knowledge, a certain discipline towards knowledge. So Muslims are, for instance, when they deal with the issue of Trinity, they are keen to read the books of Christian theologians and to translate these books accurately, to respond to them accurately. But their opponents have not entered the ethics of civilization and what they are saying about Islam is a bunch of really fabrications, very much like what Islamophobes say today, but much worse. Believe it or not, it was actually much worse. And so, subhanAllah, when you read that Surah Al-Ma'idah, that question, do you but hate us? Are you jealous? Are you angry? Because we believe in what you should know is the truth. The truth that, that the Prophet Ibrahim came with, the truth that the Prophet Musa came with. In other words, what, what we believe in is the moral code the ethics that you know is brings back the faith to its pristine purity. But and here, when Allah says akhtarakum fasikun, it's a it's a very interesting reference that your opposition is not principle. It's not that you are disagreeing with us on proper discursive premises. You are defending your privileges and you are fighting a dirty battle. Your criticisms have, you, you mock, you sneer, you, I mean, to use our modern language, you use racial epithets, you, you know, uh, believe that uh, only the descendants of such and such are worthy of receiving God's message, but the Arabs are as low as animals, or, you know, uh, the descendants of Ham are cursed by God or the dark-skinned people are cursed by God you, you, your criticism comes from inequity from fisk subhanallah I mean I've often if you if you read in the history of what Europe has said about Islam this portion of Surah Al-Ma'idah resonates with you in a very different way. Because it, you're just struck by, that's exactly it. The, the, initially, the Catholic Church looked at the Islamic message as what you are, you, you're saying that you don't need a church, you're saying that just people can 
receive God's revelation and go around just know, having a relationship with them. And they were so scandalized by, by this. They said every possible evil thing you can imagine. The rabbinic class was no less scandalized because it is not now it, 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 the whole premise that Jesus was the son of a whore and that uh, Jesus was just a, a complete uh, corruption and that the scrolls of the the whole rituals that sacralized the, and privileged the rabbinic class in being the, the, the preservers and the protectors and the decipherers and the interpreters of the scrolls of the Torah was coming and challenged. And in fact, their fear was justified because hundreds of years later, it is the Islamic message that sparked the Protestant Reformation and it is the Islamic refuge that sparked the, the Reformation of Maimonides, who was thoroughly influenced by Islamic theology and law in, in, in every fiber of his being. Again, if we wrote our own history and we understood our, our own tradition and all of that. So, the, all the mudslinging they did against Islam what really did arise from a sense of being under threat. And you know what? They were justified because Islam did in fact create the revolution that they feared in turning the relationship of God to the created upside down. People, again, if we wrote our own history, this would be taught in high schools as, as you know, just as, as, as in the same way that you study the European Reformation as have nothing to do with Muslims, and it's always taken as an article of faith that Muslims were not at all. Well, I'm telling you, if history would have progressed differently, if Muslims actually had the power of narrative, it would things would be very different. It would be an just the way normally we tell history. Islam came. Islam provide you know broke the 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 the. Uh, broke certain or challenged certain knowledge and, and eventually Islam resulted in these revolutions in the way human beings understood the relationship with God. In the same way that we talk about secularism then, you know, uh, turning God into a private institution and so on, this would have been told as as sort of the 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 course of the matter, a story of history. So, going back, when Allah says, Allah knows that what motivates you is your own weakness, your own fisk, your own inequity, the privileges that you protect. But then, okay. So, now, what is, but then, the Qur'an sort of says, but, you know, these folks who are, who you are confronted with Muslims, these, these 
Christians and Jews that live amongst you and that make that mock your religion and that you know uh, look down or try to give you the impression that they look down upon their face. What is worse is the core of the ethical failure itself. It's like saying the mockery is the end of a dynamic and an end of a process, but the origins of the problem is in something different. Now here, هَلْ أُنْبِئْكُمْ بِشَرٍ مِنْ ذَلِكَ مَثُوبَةً عِنْدَ اللَّهِ مَنْ لَعْنَهُ اللَّهِ وَغَضِبَ عَلَيْهِ Shall I tell you who in the sight of God deserves yet worse retribution than these, than those who are mocking and jeering? They whom God has rejected and whom God has condemned and whom God has turned into apes and swine because they worshipped al-taghut, wa'abad al-taghut. Now here, I'm going to disagree with Muhammad Asad's translation on a specific point in a second. Okay, so first, those that God has cursed, there is a debate in the Islamic tradition about وَجَعْلَ مِنْهُمُ الْقِرَدَةَ وَالْخَنَزِيرَ that those that God, uh, how does he put it? Uh, God has turned into apes and swine. This is referring to a historical, a historical event that God orders the Israelites to observe the Sabbath. The Israelites, which, as I, which is interesting, that same rebellion, as I said, is in the Torah itself. They challenge or they defy the Sabbath. They are not happy with the law of the Sabbath, and they are defiant in saying, "Well, if if we can profit during the Sabbath, why should we why should we refrain from making the profits in the Sabbath just because God says so?" Now, this is consistent with the Bible narrative. In some narratives, or in a bunch of narratives, that God punishes those people by smiting them, by turning them into apes and swine. That doesn't, that doesn't mean as some modern Muslims have that the anti-Semitic position that Jews are the descendants of apes and swines. It means that we are talking about a specific incident with a specific people and whether in the same way that the Bible talks about some people being punished by being turned into pillars of salt, these people were turned punished by being turned into apes and swine. 
people like a Razi or a Zamakhshari completely rejected the idea and there's they have long discussions about the authenticity of these traditions that in fact they were turned into apes or swines but they understand this metaphorically that by their defiance of the divine law and by their refusal to accept the divine law they became as if apes and swine apes in their refusal to live by a law of rationality and reason but simply by the law of whatever they desire and swine by living according to their impulses and their shahawat their um, whatever they covet so uh, people like Zamakhshari and Arazi have very interesting long discussions about this that it's not happenstance that it's ape and swine it's not because apes are disliked in God's eyes or that there's something wrong with apes but that because of their relation to reason they became as if apes irrational and their relation to being covetous and uh, uh, um, um, what's the word uh, um, and greedy, they became as if swine. And people like Arazi and Zamakhshari focus on particularly this Here there is a wa, and and they became the worshippers or they became the slaves of a ta'ut. Ta'ut is every form of injustice and inequity. When you are, when you're living with no ethics, you are living according to ta'ut. Ta'ut is every state in which you see extreme corruption and injustice, where there, there are no rules of justice, no rules of ethics. That's Tahut. And people like Arazi and Zamakhshari point out that here there's a conjunction that Allah is saying that these people continued to exist as the slaves of Tahut. How could it be that apes and swine would be the slaves of Tahut. If you're an ape or a swine, you're a slave to your instinct. Not, nothing you can do can be described as Tahut or no Tahut. But the fact that Allah tells us that these people continue to exist as the slaves of Tahut means that the reference to apes and swines is metaphorical. I agree with that school. I don't believe that God turned anyone into an ape or a swine. But Allah is saying they became like apes and like swine. And that Razi, in the lesser extent Zamakshari, because Zamakshari's discussion is not as extensive, is correct in saying that. And in fact, as Razi says, 
that in the same way when Allah says أُولَٰئِكَ شَرٌ مَكَانًا وَأَضَلُّوا عَنْ سَوَاءِ السَّبِيلِ that these people are so lost that they are truly have surrendered to evil and truly have become lost that any people who make themselves submissive to Tahut are apes and swines in God's eyes you know better and the Quran itself tells us this repeatedly about those who says that they are as if animals but even worse than than animals that you've surrendered when you live without the law of God when you've rebelled against the law of God so when Allah comes to these people who are mocking Allah saying you want to really understand the problem with these people the problem is their relationship to how they think of God's law how they relate to God's law that's why Allah describes them as saying do you want to understand who is even worse than these people the who's even worse are the people who originated this type of attitude that eventually led to the rabbinic class to the Catholic Church to these elitist exclusivist relationship with the divine and the idea that the you know the law that applies to the to to the the clergy to the privileged is completely different the the you know so and Allah then talks about again this is now a, a historical reality continuing the story of those who mock that they come to you some have understood this to apply to the munafiqun to, to the hypocrites I, I don't think so I think what this applies to is it, it's continuing the narrative about the Christians and Jews who mock, who, ha, who have this problematic relationship with Allah in that the way they approached the Prophet and the companions and the close disciples of the Prophet is that they would come to them and emphasize we are not like the bad people that fought you like Banu Nadir or Banu Quraiza we're not like them we are like you we believe in what you believe so they're emphasizing the commonality with Muslims but what is in their heart is they absolutely that's a concession a political concession a diplomatic concession so that you will accept them and allow them to live amongst you dealing with you as insiders but they enter with Kuf and leave with Kuf. it's completely false they absolutely abhor you and that's entirely consistent with the many narratives we have of various Christians and Jews this late in the Medina period in 
who were known for their uh, lack of reverence towards Muslims, let's put it this way. Okay, now, this is a part that's very important. وَتَرَى كَثِيرًا مِنْهُمْ يُسَارِعُونَ فِي الْإِثْمُ وَالْعِدْوَانِ Now, أَكْلِيُمُ السُّحْقِ لَبِئْسَ مَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ Here Allah underscores that this is not just a matter of them believing something different than what you believe. These are immoral people. That it says when you look at them, you see many of them constantly transgressing upon the rights of others. They are what is the, the same problem that when Salman al-Farisi first converted to Christianity and followed a priest and then discovered that this priest, when the priest died, that this priest was stealing money for the entire time that Salman al-Farisi was in his service. The constant complaint about the priestly class and the rabbinic class in Arabia, and not just Arabia, but in, in for good measure of the medieval era, is that they were thoroughly corrupt. Corrupt by what? Their privilege. And their privilege enabled them to do what? To eat what amounts to bribery. Their const their, their, their richest class among the this is a whole big topic. Jewish people lived in squalor and poverty, but the rabbinic class was extremely rich. Same thing with Christians. You saw shocking poverty among Christians, but the priestly class was extremely rich. That's precisely the sort. Now, Look, then Allah, because this is critical to the message of Surah Al-Ma'idah as we'll see a little bit later. Then Allah points out to what will be a core message for Surah Al-Ma'idah. لَوْلَا يَنْهَاهُمُ الرَّبَّانِيُّونَ وَالْأَحْبَارِ عَنْ قَوْلِهِمِ الْإِثْمِ وَأَكْلِهِمِ السُّحْتِ لَبِئْسَ مَا كَانُوا يَصْطَعُونَ there is a fundamental problem is that the religious leadership of these people has abandoned their ethical role. They are no longer a force for morality. They are no longer standing defying unfair usurpation of money or the exploiting of common people. In fact, they are partaking in it. They are part of the dynamics of corruption. So, Al-Dahaq, people like Al-Dahaq and Ibn Abbas described this ayah 
this ayah as the scariest ayah in the entire Quran. Now, why? Because he recognized what is obvious is Allah is pointing the finger at the religious leadership and saying, you have abandoned your moral duty. So as, as for instance, I mean, we, um, there is a lot. Ibn Abbas says, that you've abandoned your role of being advocates of being advocates for morality and ethics of what is good and standing up against what is bad. And the moral deterioration that you witness is because that obligation, as Surah Al-Ma'idah will make amply clear later on, is because that obligation has been abandoned. And as a result, and here, this is the, the, several Quranic commentators described Ibadat al-Taghut as Ibadat al-Zulm. As a result, you've become a people who've subjugated to themselves to zulm, to injustice. That you don't recognize injustice, you don't rise up against injustice, you don't defy injustice, and that is why Allah looks at you as no better than apes and swine. You consume, you play, just like apes and swine do. You consume and you play and you survive. But there's no moral function anymore. That is why Ibn Abbas and people like Al-Dahaq thought that this is the most terrifying verse of the Quran because remember that they said everything that Allah says to Jews and Christians, Allah is not saying to Jews and Christians, Allah is saying to Muslims. So what Allah is saying is Muslims, if you become like this, you are going to become the apes and swines. If you fail in your duty of an Amr al-Ma'roof and Nayan al-Munkar, this could become your state. What Allah is saying about them could apply to you. And they saw this as truly terrifying. This is truly, I mean, I agree. This to me is, when you talk about how the Quran transforms your consciousness, when Allah says, you see these people who are idiots, they're, they're, they're making fun of prayer, you want to understand, that's not the problem. Don't pay, you know, you want to understand the problem? To understand the problem is these people who abandoned the relationship to ethics. And Allah says they become subservient to tahut, to zulm, to injustice. That in God's eyes, they're like, swine and apes and you know how they got there they got there because those who were supposed to rise and stand for what is right 
and against what is wrong have failed in their obligation. Who is Allah talking about? That's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Then we come to وَقَالَتِ الْيَهُودُ يَدُ اللَّهِ مَغْلُولَةِ that this this is the, the um, uh, now um, sixty four. There is there are traditions that people like um, in Nabash bin Qais. Nabash bin Qais was a Jew who reportedly goes to the. Who's, who was mocking Muslims and says, so, some reports say, say that he said it to the Prophet, some reports say no, he said it was one of the companions, but then it reached the Prophet. That in the Bashman Qais was tra conveying what he had heard from his rabbis, and that the rabbis were making fun of Muslims by saying, Look, we are very rich compared to Muhammad and Abu Bakr by then had spent all his wealth in the, and people like the, the people who were disciples compared to Muhammad, compared to Ali, compared, we are far richer than they are. Their God is indeed stingy because if God, if if their God was generous, God, their God would have given them as much as we have. And that, then there are many reports that say that this verse was in response to what people like in the Bashman Qais were saying. There are, the reason I say people like, because there are different reports that, that say it wasn't just in the Bashman Qais, but I forgot the names of the, the other two mentioned. Um, I, I mean, it, it's probably happened, it's probably, you know, but I think that it was, I think that there was a broader dynamic going on here, that it was one of the, and the reason I, I, I think that, by the way, is that I found that among the critiques that um, Arab Christians allied to the Byzantine Empire would say about Muslims is we are the we, we and our allies means the Byzantines are so much richer than Muslims what is wrong with their God? Either they are worshipping a false God or they are worshipping a stingy God. And if that criticism existed a hundred years after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, then it means that it was probably a very popular motif of taunting Muslims at the time that the Quran is revealed. And what is that motif is to say, and by the way, you, you hear that even among Islamophobes today, when Islamophobes say, look, look at who controls the wealth in the world. It's not Muslims. Doesn't that 
isn't that proof? This is very common among, you know, the so-called so neocons. Isn't that like that book, um, uh, what was the name of that book about the, the Christians in Washington, D.C.? The Family. The Family. If you actually read that book, one of the things that struck me it, among what the, the, the Christians teach the, those people who are going into politics is the saying Jesus loves us because look, all the richest people in the world are Christians. So this is proof that that this world belongs to Jesus because you know we control the finances of the world. And when I read that in the family, I'm like, wow, subhanAllah, I mean, things haven't changed. So the, the, the constant critique is, look at their, their, their elite, their elite, or Ali, Omar, Abu Bakr, these people, and compared to us, they're hardly compared in wealth, which is true. I mean, which was absolutely true. But... Now, there is a subtle point about them saying God's hands are shackled. Remember that in the narrative of the Bible, it has already been, in, in the corrupted narrative, that you have figures who wrestle with God, beat God, and force God to bless the Israelites. God has stopped being a significant figure, even in the distribution of wealth. Now, Maimonides re rehabilitates this somewhat, somewhat, not completely. But God is a figure that has passed the torch to the rabbinic class to be in charge, God is no longer distributing wealth in the, in the finer points of Jewish theology at the time. So God, in fact, is inept. God has chosen the chosen people, made them wealthy, made them successful, made them privileged, but has stepped out of the game. And this is a clear indication where the, the Quran comes back and says, rebels against this idea, defies this idea, and says, you're, you're crazy. God's hands are free. God is not the inept God who not only doesn't distribute wealth, but even in some schools of Jewish theology, doesn't even have, even have the power to reward or punish in the hereafter. I mean, it depends on the particular school you're talking about. But this is, it goes back to the different conception of God in Judaism and Islam. And by the way, uh, I mean, There is, I mean, but this is, this was in the Kalam literature, where Muslims, in analyzing Christian and Jewish theology, particularly Christian theology, they try, they, they, they demonstrate that logically, if you follow 
Christian theology to its logical conclusions, uh, that in Christianity, that once you've once you've obligated God through baptismal sacraments and so on, that God loses much of God's discretion. In so. Uh, among the debates that Muslims would make vis-a-vis -vis Christians is that your idea of God is actually an equally inept God. God without discretion, once the certain sacramental activity has been taken, that God has no choice to... Can't, this God can't forgive a Muslim, for instance, and put a Muslim in heaven, because that God has is bound and obligated by... God's pre-commitments. Anyway, uh, so y you find that this goes on, as I said, from Surah Al-Mahdi, it goes on in the um, the discourses back and forth between Christians and Jews in the first centuries of Islam. Okay, now the part that we that remains. وَلَيَزِيدَنَّ كَثِيرًا مِنْهُمْ مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ تُغْيَانًا وَكُفْرًا وَأَلْقَيْنَا بَيْنَهُمُ الْعَدَاوَةَ وَالْبَغْضَاءَ إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ. So there is a part that when it's when they hear immoralistic discourse, when they know that the Quran is talking about immoral order, that they know intuitively is true. What their reaction, however, will be defiance and further hatred. I, I mean, subhanAllah, this tells us a great deal about the Islamophobia industry. It's unprecedented in, in human history for people to spend millions and billions of dollars to rich people always love their money it has never been the case that rich people spend millions of dollars to defile a religion or to defame another religion they could spend money perhaps to prop up their own religion like build churches build resorts, build whatever, but to defame a religion, it hasn't happened. There's, I have never, I have not found another example, except with Islam. Now, read this ayah and compare it. It's as if what churns the Islamophobia industry is that it all intuitively rings true to them. They know that Islam is the biggest threat because they know that it has that pristineness, that purity, that ethical rationality. And you know, there are some, many historians that have said that the West has largely defined itself 
in antithesis to Muslims. In other words, what you know, they're, they're to, as a reaction to what they, they they perceive Muslims as. But the drive to constantly demonize Muslims and the passion, the the the, the to, to the, the sheer angst in defaming Islam is, I mean, compare that to what the Quran says that that the reaction to seeing what the message that you received is to escalate their hatred and their enmity. Now, very importantly, so now, when Allah talks about that Allah inspired as a result of their non-ethical, of this, this loss of ethics, that Allah has inspired hatred and hostility amongst them to the hereafter. And that every time they Kindle, uh, 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 the kindle, the fire of war, Allah extinguishes it. And that, in fact, they there is a core problem and that they seek corruption on earth. That Allah doesn't love the corrupt. Now, this ayah only becomes surprising post-World War II. If you would have looked at the history of Christians up to World War II, you would have said, subhanAllah, because the war, Christian nations have been in constant their relationship from the time of the revelation of the Quran until World War II was constant in warring and in fighting. I mean, there are some historians that try to estimate how many human beings died in the internal wars of Christianity. Which is, well, anyway. Um, there are some, I mean, like Sheikh Muhammad Ghazali used to say that. Even post-World War II, you, that that the, how do I put it, that 
the different forms of Christianity continue to exist in tension and enmity and that the period after the crashing of the Soviet Union is is a is a we all live under the constant threat of nuclear annihilation and the constant reality of the destruction of the environment that that it it is inaccurate to describe the relations among Christians and Jews and one another as a relationship that in which enmity and hostility has ended. Um, I, mean, my, I, I think, Allahu A'lam, but I think that as long as Christians and Jews, and this is the, the reason I, I, I say this, when Allah talks to the Israelites and tells the Israelites that what does Allah ultimately tell the Israelites? That if you do good, God will treat you in response to this good. I believe that when Allah says that Allah inspired hate and enmity, between them until the Yomul Qiyamah. That means that it is so as long as their relationship to ethics remains as it is as described in Surah Al-Ma'idah. And that after World War II there was a rekindling of an ethical core that in, in triumphalist narratives of history, they, they talk about it as if this has, I mean, this is so young, uh, as if this has been a, a, a long reality, long existing reality, and a reality that will exist long into the future. Well, the truth of the matter is, it has been a short-lived reality, a very short-lived reality, and a reality that we have no idea how long it will actually last. It's already crumbling, as we see with the rise of racism and the rise of fascism and the, 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 the xenophobia and so on. But that after World War II, the injuries of World War II pushed a certain segment of Christianity into a rekindling their relationship to an ethics beyond materialism and realism and elitism. But it was have it has been very short-lived, meaning that it has existed only since World War II. And of course it is not clean and it is highly problematic because it is highly commingled 
with the oppression of other people and it is highly commingled with the corruption of the earth and that the description of that they still seek or that they spread corruption on earth that hasn't changed but relatively speaking relatively speaking the reason that we see the rather stark picture of constant wars and infighting in history of Christianity take a pause after World War II is because of the relationship in direct relationship of the West particularly to morality and ethics Does, do you understand what I'm saying? that it's it's too premature for us to say oh well okay you know there's no more enmity and hostility because if we wake up tomorrow and one of these nations have gone to nuclear war against another nation we're going to all be saying sort of it's absolutely right but and as we saw see what goes on what's going on in ukraine and, and russia you know, I I was among the people who said maybe I was really, really premature in thinking that Europe can behave for very long. I mean, the period that Europe has been on its best behavior since World War II is so amazingly short in, from in historical terms that all the triumphalist European history written is laughable. I mean, you guys are, are, are bragging about what? Bragging about being able to achieve a relative amount of peace and stability and civility since World War II? Do, do you know how short that is? Um, anyway, but... What deserves comment, we do not know what wars could have happened that Allah ex extinguished. Except that I'll tell you, as a humble student of history, I often, as I'm reading history, truly wonder how is it that humanity continues to survive. There are so many episodes in history where you think to yourself, it is truly miraculous that we continue to survive on this earth. Because it just, what could have gone wrong If, if you knew the alt what could have been the possibilities, you are three truly grateful for what is. Put it that way. Um, but the other thing that we cannot miss, notice how war here in Surah Al-Ma'idah, this late in the Quranic revelation, is identified as an evil. 
this has often been overlooked by our when Allah says that كُلَّمَا أَقَضُوا نَارًا لِلْحَرْبِ أَطْفَأَهَ اللَّهِ War, it might be a necessary evil, but it is an evil. It is never a good. Because Allah is telling us, be mindful that one of the blessings of Allah is that Allah puts out wars. And Allah describes those who are warmongering as Yusauna Fal Ardi Fasada, they seek corruption on earth. I think the the ethics and the morality of that is obvious. So all of those that try to including Muslims, who try to cast the Quranic theology of war as oh, you know, peace has been abrogated, and then there was the verse of a safe. Well, Surah Al-Ma'idah, which is the latest Quranic revelation, and as we will see, because it, it underscores this, still is talking about war as an evil. In the same way that the Quran before has told Muslims, be grateful when Allah saves you from the enmity and the hostility of others. Be grateful when Allah enables you to avoid war. War might be a necessary evil, but it is always an evil. It is never a good. Okay, what, what time is it? Okay, it's 9.30. So, can we all agree that we stopped at 65? Okay, 65. May Allah help us. Maybe we'll get done with this in the next 10 years. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> okay. Mohammed Asad transitions after 60, the 67. 67 seems to move away from Ahlul Kitab. I'm just flagging it just in case. As and Asad stuff say he's got a break after 66. I mean, well, I mean, I'm just, yeah, whatever. Well, it can't be after 60, uh, after it might, because it continues talking about Manhadu was Sabi'una and Nasara, well, after. Okay, I swear, one of my prayers at the beginning of every halakha is, please God, don't let my hand cramp, because a lot of times it cramps and I'm trying to just keep up. Um, alhamdulillah, we covered so much amazing um, stuff, and I tried to capture highlights on my page. Um, so, number one, um, for, I mean, this was incredible, right? Um, 
So to recap that Allah's law is one, but the rituals are different for different people. And that, you know, part of the problem is unequal justice, um, justice that, you know, the different standards for different people. So the powerful have one standard and the weak have another. Um, and the reminder that when we rule, um, or to the Prophet peace be upon him, is when, when you rule, rule by Allah's decree, not by your whim. Um, and then the discussion on the logic of pragmatism, which is what so many, you know, what we to this day suffer from, the logic of pragmatism or reality, um, you know, over idealism. Um, I thought what you said about, um, you know, in Islamic law that we are not allowed to um, kill another person or, you know, choose another person or choose our life in preference to the life of another person, which um, is so powerful um, that Unfortunately, you know, in our modern times, uh, Surah Al-Ma'idah became about small side discussions of, you know, little technicalities, um, and the grand moral messages have largely been ignored. Um, you know, among them, like taking Jews and Christians as allies, being understood as, you know, don't befriend um, Jews and Christians, as opposed to understanding it as a moral warning about um, you know, moving away or not understanding um, the, the core morality that, that God is calling for. Um, and then the discussion of um, victory, that victory, Allah's victory, you know, you, you felt this is about the hereafter, not about the here and now, and what really is victory, because um, this world is constantly changing, nothing is permanent, um, and that this world is really about process. Um, for us, it should be about process, not about the results that we should focus on, you know, doing our job and what we will be held accountable for. And the rest is truly up to Allah. Um, it's a really interesting discussion about the characteristics of those um, who, you know, are in contrast to the apostates. So number one, those who love God, which means knowing God enough to love God, and then in turn, God loves them. Um, two, that the attitude towards other Muslims is um, one of overwhelming compassion and mercy um, and, and humility. Um, and three, um, being anchored in certitude um, and not caring about who likes them or not likes them. But once you are, um, you know, in your jihad, you, you care about your relationship with truth and your relationship with God. You're committed to principle. Um, and that, you know, we are now in an age of apostasy. Um, and so it's really interesting to, to take note of these qualities, you know, when you ask yourself, what is the quality of the people um, who can actually reverse this tide? Um, and then the point about, you know, uh, or the verses about don't befriend those who mock your faith. Um, and, you know, interestingly, that Surah Al-Ma'idah is, is forward-looking. So who are the, the people that, you know, the, that this surah is talking about, it's not the idol worshippers who were there at the time, but the people of the book that would become more of an issue 100 years later, um, that mockery is an, is sort of the end of the process. But what's more important is to understand the origins. And um, what comes is when you abandon your ethical core, um, you become a slave to injustice and inequity with extreme corruption, um, which causes you to become like apes and swine. So it's a metaphor for people who lack reason um, and they really are only concerned about what they desire. They live by impulse and what they covet. And that ultimately this is a warning to Muslims that if you should abandon morality, you will also like that, like them, become like ape and apes and swine. 
and that the failure um, is uh, with those who were supposed to rise for morality but ultimately failed, which, you know, again, like we were saying at the beginning, this is a huge example, the, the, um, the group of, of Muslim scholars that went to China. Um, and then just as you closed the point about, you know, in Surah Ma'idah, God making clear that war is evil, that there might be necessary, it might be a necessary evil at times, but ultimately it is evil and it is a form of corruption um, on this earth and God does not love those who corrupt the earth. Uh, so much gold in this one session. Thank you so much. Um, Okay, <laughs> alhamdulillah, um, I'm so excited. We ended at what, what verse? 65. 65, okay, alhamdulillah. We made it, I think, 10 verses, <laughs> 10, 15 verses. Alhamdulillah, it was so great. Um, I, you know, it's, we just keep telling Sheikh behind the scenes, don't rush because it's, it's really, you know, even if we go over the same verses again, it's, there's so much gold and it's, it's rich and it's important for us not to miss anything, so. Thank you for joining us. This was incredible. I'm so excited to continue um, day six next week, inshallah. But everybody have a wonderful week. And it's wonderful to see all of you. And Adit, salam alaikum. And Elaine and Brian and Joshua, Joshua and Hiram with, and Witsky and Ramin holding down the fort in Southern California. <laughs> so great to see all of you guys. Have a great week and we'll see you soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.